0: Please.
1: Thing i gotta say about when love calls to me it's sort of in a vein of um it makes me think of ain't nobody by rufus and shaka but
0: it came before that you know right right hawk Molinsky. i remember when we met hawk molinski because we recorded uh we recorded something at his studio one time and i can't remember what song it was but, yeah, he was a he was an energetic guy. Yeah, but that ain't nobody is, boy. I did a remake of that. I never put it out. But uh, I got a real funky track of that, you know? That was one of, one of my favorite songs.
1: Yeah, it's a classic, no doubt.
0: But you mm-hmm. got plenty of
1: your own classics. Uh, Brilliance uh, came and went to number one on the R&B chart. That mm-hmm. was the first chart topper that you guys had. Must right and sitting on top of the world at that time, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, that was a good time, man. I mean, we were touring like crazy, hitting the south. That's when we hit like Carolina, you know, and, uh, Atlanta, New Orleans, Texas. You know, all those southern states and, and Midwest states, man. They love that. We was we would really getting known then, you know, and it was it was interesting because we were playing with uh, doing a lot of stuff at that time. Cameo and uh, Mother's Finest and who else? Rick James. Matter of fact, we did we did a lot, a bunch of dates in the Bud Fest with Rick James, and uh, Patty LaBelle. Um, we did some stuff with Luther, but as we evolved and then our records, we started getting that notoriety. We we did a, a tour one year with just Luther and Patty alone. That's when we played The Garden two nights. It sold, that particular show with them sold out The Garden for two nights.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so people know uh, this record had uh, Love Me Down and okay. uh, Circles, number two, and, and Cracked the Top 40 on the pop chart. For the first time, yeah, um really catchy, like mid-tempo. Well, that one's more up-tempo, but really catchy R&B with sort of a pop flavor to it. And this record, to me, I thought I felt in some creeping in of like you know Prince and Michael Jackson influence and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, some some of that. Yeah, you know, love moves. Love moves. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Love Moves, and
1: uh, what else? Well, even Sexy Dancer was a a Prince title also. Yeah, there
0: you go. Sexy Dancer. There you go. You know, it's so much music, man. I have to stop and think, because, you know, my brain is older now. So it's like, let me just think for a minute. Because I tell you, it's been a journey, man. I mean, you're talking about now, a little over 40 years of doing this thing, man. So, you know, and we're still doing it. And, you know, we were, up until when Corona hit, we were still getting. We had a bunch of stuff lined up, well, you know, for the year that we couldn't do because of the Corona thing. Yeah. And then we, were, we had, we were, we were playing, we did France and England last year, and we did Japan. We've still been doing Japan a lot. You know, we're getting a lot of calls to come South Africa. I was working on uh, some potential stuff for South Africa and for Brazil. So you know, the demand is crazy. How how stuff like this evolved, where the demand is strong all over. You know, how did
1: you um, come to the Atlantic Star name? I guess I heard because you were on the Atlantic coast, and how did the Star part of it?
0: Well, that was, that's an interesting story. We Once we n- knew that we were going to be signing with Ann, and we figured, we said, well, we need to come up with a different name. So we had a bunch of names in a hat. Everybody wrote down the name they liked. And so we pulled two names, Atlantic Star, I mean, Atlantic Flash and Eastern Star and we didn't like the Atlantic Flash because that flashness was like too flashy like felt like almost like Flash Gordon (laughs) and Eastern Star was like that was too Middle Eastern we didn't want to you know make it seem like we just so what we took was the Atlantic because we're from the Atlantic coast and Star because you know we just felt we were that that bright shining star and basically we didn't spell it with one off but with two R's. so we put it together everybody agreed It just rang right it felt right and we said this is it atlantic star bam we got it we rolled with it you know
1: at some point in the, by the early 80s i think you know you had uh knowing atlantic star we had midnight star and you had star point and you had five star and star guard. And was there some confusion?
0: We opened up the star, we opened up the star womb. <laughs> did,
1: did you guys ever run into any confusion with that? Because, I mean, Midnight Star and Star Point also had female lead vocalists. Right. Well, yeah.
0: People, yeah, people kind of started getting confused talking about, I like, I like your music. No dancing on, no, I mean, uh, love, love, what was it? The uh, Midnight Star I had. Uh, 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 love what was it the uh, play another love song it's time to make oh a slow song. jam slow jam They was like "Oh, well, i love your song slow jam it was like no we didn't write that that's midnight star so they people start getting us mixed up yeah <laughs> but the last star came first <laughs> and you had the two r's you had the two r's exactly
1: did you guys <laughs> ever do shows with any of the other stars
0: yeah, we did quite a few shows with Starpoint, with um, Diggs. Uh, I can't think of it. Renee Diane Diggs. Renee Diggs, Renee Diggs yeah. yeah. She was a sweetheart, and she was a great talent. Um, and it was a great loss when she passed away. I mean, I couldn't believe that. I was yeah. I was in Photoshop, so young. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she was a wonderful person and an incredible singer, and a... incredible showman and an incredible spirit you know um yeah she was a beautiful young lady um i'll never forget
1: your um your third record just stepping through it jonathan um yours forever went to number 10 r&b but it, it didn't quite seem to hit as well as the two that came before that one was there something different in the air when you did that one
0: yeah, I think, but it was overall at that time, collectively, we didn't have that. like we once had. I think you know. Uh, I think some of the folks in the band, you know, felt a little uh, indifferent to some things that they weren't getting their stuff picked as far as songs and, um, and you know. It, it was like what happens in a family, you know. You get you get a rift going, and you know people start getting, you know, uh, angry or, or feelings towards each other, and then it, it changes. It creates a problem, you know what I'm saying? So, I think at that point in time, you know, um, some people really wanted to just kind of like maybe do their own thing, um, or felt the direction of the group was no longer direct, the direction that they wanted to go in, um, you know, and like I said, um, you know, I think because my brothers and then that, myself at that time, I had written a couple of things, you know, because it seemed like I guess if they felt the focus was more on the Lewis brothers that, you know, you know, you create some feelings. So I think what happened was it reflected in the music, you know. I think, um, like I said, you know, we had kind of you know, started going in different directions, let's put it that way.
1: So you had you had some personnel changes. I think Sharon left and, and right. Barbara came in, Barbara Weathers and Uh, and you also had fewer band members on the, on the next record.
0: Yeah. Basically what we did is, you know, everybody sort of like had a, you know, just basically threw their hands up and said, I quit, (laughs) you know, and then, um, and then basically took back who they wanted. Um, Sharon, they wanted to keep, but Sharon, you know, went in a different direction. Um, She went to a different label, and I think Poirier ended up getting his own deal um, with a label, with one of the majors. So myself and my brothers and Joy Phillips basically stayed, you know, and did a completely new deal with uh, A&M. And then at that time, my brothers David and Wayne were working on a demo. Uh, for Barbara Weathers uh, for MCA records. Uh, but MCA, I guess for whatever reason, they didn't hear it, so they passed on it. So at that time, we, we we had a spot for a female to come in, and Barbara happened to be available, so we incorporated her into the As The Pan. turns out. And basically that's yeah, basically how that how that evolution happened, you know.
1: Well you guys certainly bounced back well in terms of again chart and radio success with that record and right. You had a very atypical for you guys lead single and the first track Freak was yeah. uh, super funky and more funky I, than you it know
0: was different for us. <laughs> yeah. But you know what was funny, I'll never forget that song. We were at my mom's house because we had a set up upstairs. And I remember I came upstairs when they, my brother David was playing this funky thing. I was like, "What is that?" And so he had played it, sequenced it. You know, I was like, "Man, this is this is like, this is banging right here. We got to cut this." And so it was different for us, you know, because we were we loved Parliament Funkadelic. You know, and it had that, those undertones, of my fucking you know. So I was like, yeah, we got some, we got some funk to be, to you know, to, to feel good about. You so know, it was like, let's, let's put it out, you know. And so, yeah, that became the first single. And, um, the video was fun. It was different for us, very abstract. You know, we never would have thought we would have had something like that. But yeah, that was David that came up with that idea.
1: I think it's quite a impressive feat that you guys had as big of a hit with that with how different it was from, you know, some of your other stuff. So it showed a lot of range.
0: Yeah, well, what it was is it, it, it lined up with the times at that time. It was a song that kind of fell right in that groove with the vibe that was going on at that time, you know. Um eighty five, yeah. You know, and then we had I remember we, we cut that record at hot. we cut a lot of that record at uh, Soundcastle in our LA. I'll never forget it because I know Natalie Cole was over there at that time and she was working on I think it was yeah, I think it was that album that she was still she was working over there in the studio at that time. And then we had John Barnes come in and he played a lot of the Fairlight like, and emulated stuff on Freak Rispy, you know what I'm saying, because that's the first time we really had incorporated. Because you know John Barnes did a lot of stuff for Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so that's what gave it that boom ba dong he sampled that. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, he just he was playing the Fairlight, and that was a whole new different sound, that digital sound that was going on at that time. So that really put us in a whole different place, you know, um, when when he came in. And uh, like I said, we cut that at Soundcastle. Uh, I'll be I can remember that session like yesterday. You know, we worked with an engineer called Bino. He was young guy at that time. And uh, working on that new board, those SL, SSL boards and stuff. was like, right. but yeah, the vibe was good. I remember the way he was just rocking it. But yeah, that was our first funky thing. We, we, you know, we can listen to It was experimental, but it was and it was difficult, but it was fun it was that way. You
1: know? Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, so you guys enjoyed uh, making uh, videos in general, and what about, like, TV appearances and that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, we, we loved doing uh, TV, doing Soul Train, doing uh, Dick Clark shows, Solid Gold, American Bandstand, and all. We did all of that, you know? That was fun. Dick Clark was a great guy. He was Mr. Personality, Mr. TV, Mr. Radio. I mean, Mr. Music, because he goes way back. Like the guy was talking about Cousin Bruce and him back in the end, American Bandstand. I remember a kid watching American Bandstand. So to really be on American Bandstand, that was like, it was like, wow, I'm on American Bandstand. <laughs> you know? You couldn't get more crossover than American Bandstand, you know?
1: Yeah, with the ageless wonder, Dick Clark.
0: Yeah, he was a great guy, man. He he, he was a personality that, you know, that was a true, 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 true music guy.
1: Let me ask you this, Jonathan. How how did uh, Barbara differ from Sharon in terms of her sound and also how she went about her business?
0: Well, Sharon had more of a, I think Sharon's sound was more contemporary R&B, even though it wasn't a gutty, you know, like, um, type of, you know, sound. But she had a unique sound in and of itself. When she had that contemporary R&B sound with a hint of pop, Barbara had a pop sound and she had a pop look. She had a she was she had a crossover look, you know what I'm saying, and a sound and you know that little girl innocence. And then my brother Wayne was producing all the vocals, because he did a lot of stuff with Sharon, too. Sharon, I mean, James and and Wayne, you know, when it came out of vocals, but the Azvina Turns album was the first album that we had total control over. So Wayne really, really worked Barbara's vocals. And she came with uh, a certain awareness and talent, because she was playing with a band down in North Carolina. So she had a, already had like more or less a musical concert You know how to deliver. And she had a good stage presence too. So I think that's really what it was with her is because she had a stage presence. Because she, when Barbara came in, we toured a lot. We did a lot of shows. We collectively, when Barbara came in, we were out on the road almost for 11 months. I mean, we put all the time together, not not consecutively, but um, collectively. We were out for almost 11 months then. We were in the Far East. We did a Pacific Command tour with the United States Air Force all throughout Southeast Asia. And what happened was, from us playing down there, it kind of boosted us because then the vibe came back and the word got back about us back in the States. So once we got back home, after that tour, we might have laid off about three weeks, and then bam, we was right back, because we were in the York, we were right back on the road three or four weeks later, and then we stayed out there. I mean, we were were working, I mean, nonstop. I'll never forget, I think Detroit, we must have played Detroit about six times that Wow. And New Orleans and all, I mean, we we were busy, you know. Um, We were real busy. So, yeah, I think Barber's, and then we started, we did a lot of stuff overseas. We played England and we played Japan. Um, And when we hit England, we played Hammersmith. It was a rap after that, Hmm. you know. Because we, I mean, we did Hammersmith, Croydon, In manchester but when we did hammersmith oh my god we turned that joint out it was like so crazy because the people started chanting after a while and they started chanting so loud that you couldn't hear the monitors on stage no more because the crowd was like it was just raw going on i was like oh my god (laughs)
1: wow
0: (laughs) you know i never heard nothing like it it was kind of scary you know what i'm (laughs) But to have that energy, because that's what it was, to build the dynamics of that energy, you slapping them in the face. And we were playing freakaristic, and we had a guitar player with us at the time. His name was Fritz Cadet. And Fritz was, uh, oh, man, this guy was one of the baddest guitar players, that unsung heroes that you never really heard about. But this guy, when he would open up, Yo, he was in the middle of his solo, and the music the apex, and it just took off. It just went to a whole nother zone, and, and, and everybody was in the zone. <laughs> and all we, all you could do is get the feedback. You know, I was like, after a while, it was so loud that you couldn't hear, the, you couldn't hardly hear what was going on stage anymore. if the crowd was going crazy. I was like, this, this is incredible, you know. It was a high. I'm not going to lie with you. I I didn't have to drink or do nothing. After I came on stage, it was like I was high. That's
1: That's a beautiful thing, man. That's what what music's all about right there.
0: Yo, they showed us big love. I love playing England. You know, because one thing about when you play England, they either love you or they hate you. There's no in-between. When you go there, you got to go there knowing that you, you better put that work in. Because you come to London wrong, they're going to let you know.
1: You know, know, I didn't realize until I went back and looked again, but that record, as the band turns, was kind of like a thriller or Purple Rain for you guys or whatever because there were so many, almost every song was a single,
0: right? Exactly. Almost every song was a single on that record.
1: I mean, that's unusual.
0: Well, we, we, I got to tell you, we were in the zone when we were doing that record because we had a lot of the songs already ready before the band broke up because you got to remember we were in the process of getting ready to start recording again prior to us starting the as the band turns album so when it fell apart we went to a cool spot for a moment the record company we did a whole new deal and then we started working on After the band Turns And then at that time, I was doing a lot of, my brothers were playing a lot of the parts and stuff, but I was sequencing, I was programming everything. You know what I'm saying? I was working with them, so they would play, but I was programming. And, you know, so we were, it was a lot of good energy that went into that record. You know what I'm saying? Now, two of the songs, I wasn't I wasn't around when they did those two songs because I came back to New York instead and of California. And those two songs were Secret Lovers and Silver Shadow, but I didn't hear those until they came back to New York. Did
1: Did you guys have any say in what would be a single, or was it purely up to the label?
0: Um, basically, the label basically picked the songs that they wanted to. The song that they wanted to come with first, you know? Um, we kind of like we like that, you know, tried to follow the label's lead. Sometimes hindsight, you know, we should have took more of a, uh, you know, more of a uh, adamant approach when it came down to which songs you're going to go with. But, we were programmed to you know think the record company had all the answers so we let them choose the it worked out
1: pretty good secret mm-hmm. lovers great great ballad off that album too
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a it's a real funny story about because you know that as the band turns album was the last album we did with a m and What happened was, I think we had released Jekyll Lovers first, or Silver Shadow, I can't remember which one it was. But I know the album got to 250,000 in sales. I think we had put Silver Shadow out, that's what it was. And I don't think they thought the album was going to do anything. Because Secret Lovers really only made it to them eight on the R&B charts. So we I'll never forget this. This is what I still call divine intervention. We were in Greenville, North Carolina, and we had a conference call with the record company right before the show and that's when they let us know that they were not going to pick up our option So basically they were letting us know that they were dropping us so we were there with the, the the confunction and i can't think it was two other bands that night after we had our meeting you know of course prior to the show we were a little down you know and so the, I think it was the drummer, yeah, I think it was the drummer, Lightskin Brother from Confunction, he came in and he said to me, he said, my, my man, I've been listening to your set, and that song, Secret Lovers, he said, you been playing that too far up in the front of the show. You need to end with that. And I listened to him, and I said, hmm, okay. So I thanked them, and I told, when I got my brother, we, we talked about it, I said, well, you know what, let's end with Secret Lovers tonight. You know, what the heck, you know. So sure enough, we got to the last song. Barbie did our introduction like she always did for Secret Lovers. And we hit it. And we were in, we were play, you know, we were in the middle of playing it. Got to the last chorus and last sing along, last sixteen bars when it's starting to. Reach the right before we ended it. Sold out crowd in Greensboro, North Carolina, eighteen thousand people. Everybody in the in the arena lit lighters up. So the whole arena lit lighters, was lit.
1: Yes, before smartphones,
0: right? <laughs> before smartphones. a whole arena, they just sat these lighters, so they looked like candles. And I'm sitting there at the end, and I'm playing the last eight bars, and I'm looking out there, and I said to myself, A&M just made a big mistake. we we get ready to blow up. Sure enough after that concert and we kept playing almost eight or nine months later got a call from a pop radio station in Washington DC call in and records even though we weren't technically with them but we still toured. Call a and Reckon and said, Y'all guys got a pop hit on your hands. What you gonna do about it? see Lovers again only went to eight on the black chops. But it almost went to number three on the pop charts. I mean number one on the pop charts. We went to number three. That song took off like a like a rocket. And once that thing caught on, there was no stopping. We just played and played and played. <laughs> I mean, we were on the road for forever because that song was so hot that year. And, and it just, that's the song that really opened up the womb for us, that really gave birth to the next phase of Atlantic Star. Yeah,
1: the crossover phenomenon of Atlantic Star. Yeah. Uh, so did you go straight to Warner Brothers or did other labels try to get you or?
0: Well, no, we didn't go straight to Warner Brothers because after that happened, and then put a big billboard on Sunset Boulevard and Charlie Chaplin Studio with Atlantic Star on this big billboard. We, they put out another single after that called If Your Heart Isn't In It, but we, you know, we were technically Technically, no longer. We were basically free agents. So, we also did in between time, we were working with, we did a song with Maurice on the uh, John Candy movie Armed um, and Dangerous. We did the soundtrack for the movie mm-hmm. with Maurice. That was on Manhattan Records. So, AM. Went back into negotiating again with us, wanting to get us back. That's when Warner Brothers had came in, and basically Warner Brothers basically had made us an offer. A and M came with a counter offer, but it didn't match up. So we're saying, well, if y'all do A, B, C, and D, we'll consider coming back to you guys. But the offer that Warner made was, I guess, out of reach for them, and they didn't want to deal with it. So we didn't. We left. I mean, even though we were in signed, we, you know, we we, um, we didn't leave with animosity and malice. We, you know, agreed that we should go. You know, they agreed that we go to, you know, should go to Warner's because it was a better situation. We ended up going over with one is with, um, Mo Austin and Lenny Monica and then Benny Medina was our A&R guy over there. So that's how that transition went down, going to Walters.
1: Yeah. And you guys continued to, uh, up the ante with (laughs) all in the name of love in 87 with your number one smash always. And, You know i was a disc jockey throughout the 80s for you know clubs and mobile work and all that and i did a lot of weddings and of course that became just a wedding standard you know when you guys were uh, making that did you have any sense of like you know what kind of uh magnitude that that track would
0: would attain no i did um it was a song that basically originated with, with me. I mean it was a concept thing you know with the chords. It was a progression I would play but I didn't have the, didn't have the B section prior to the chorus. And so my brother David came in and I got him to come to help me work on the musical side and he helped me work on the B section. So basically we worked on that together and he got the chordal knowledge and what to put there and I basically just summed the melody with him. And so once we put that B section in and completed the song. Then my brother Wayne came in and put the melody on along with the lyrics. You know, but the melody was basically already in the actual progressions. And we were trying to do that song years earlier. When James was there, and he said, because we really wrote the song, we wanted to try to get it to Kenny Rogers or Lionel or somebody like that. James Carmichael said to us, he said, Guys, you'll need to hold on to that song. They'll have it dead one day. So, you know, again, we didn't understand what he was talking about. I know mean, for me, I was like, you know, wow. Okay, so we said, we'll wait, and so when we got the as the band turned, we was like, we pulled it out we said, let's cut always. ways. so we cut all ways.
1: so that went back to the early eighties, actually, the beginnings of it
0: uh it was like towards the end of james, I think it was it was like yeah around around that ground right before right before I think we did the as the band
1: turns album. so like mid 80s yeah. yeah
0: well early, earlier than that but you know right before because we got the as the band turns album, we started working on that at the end of 83 84. you know what i'm
1: saying so yeah well this record i think was your only platinum album right it did go platinum
0: yeah well right um the as the band turns album i think is raa uh ria is i think it's certified double platinum now okay well i'm pretty sure it is i'd have to check it
1: well in any case uh this one also platinum
0: and um
1: again just full of you know catchy tracks from beginning to end um lots of um you talk about the programming you know i always notice with this one lots of like what i like to call like percolating synthesizer kind of sounds you know sort of mm-hmm. reminding me a little bit sort of like you know what the system was getting in with and that kind of thing i don't know if you enjoyed their work but um.
0: yeah Mister mike murphy was out we were out with them and we did some stuff with them matter of fact um the guitar player in there playing with mike murphy paul pesco was it? we gave him his first shot of being out on the road and he went on to play with mike murphy and then did madonna's tour so you know we wow. were able to help some folks get jumpstart their careers too you know
1: that's great that's awesome um, yeah. but it must have felt good too you know this was self-produced right
0: yeah yeah that was all done again with that with the lewis brothers you know we all you know oh. did what we do stayed in our lane and did what we did best you know
1: was that Part of negotiating that new deal, you know, hey, we're going to produce ourselves?
0: Um, Basically, we didn't have to really go too deep into that because we already had the respect at the end, as the band turned out. You know, that kind of went without saying. You know, we didn't need to produce anymore. You know, we were basically season producers ourselves, you know.
1: One track I want to mention from that record, Jonathan, is All In The Name Of Love. I was a little surprised that wasn't a bigger
0: hit, that one. Yeah, that should have been. um, uh, Sam Dees wrote that. The guy that wrote that, Sin For Me. Mm. Yeah, Sam Dees wrote that. I used to love to hear Sam Dees sing. When we had had a place out in LA, he would come by and he, he would play stuff and sing stuff. And man, Sam was... Look, it was a magical guy. I mean, he, he had a vibe about him that, you know, that was great. Old school. Hmm. But he was really, like, uh, incredible. I mean, one of, one of the greatest writers that I know. I mean, uh, he wrote this heartfelt music.
1: Is there any other track, uh, from that one that was a favorite of yours that you want to mention before we move on or females? Yeah. Third track.
0: Yeah, that was I'll pretty, make...
1: that was a little funkier. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would definitely program in, in sequence. Like you said, uh, we definitely had, you know, got, got it down to a science, you know, we had a big, uh, we had a big, how should I say, a big uh, monstrosity that we put together with, with, with rack-mouth keyboard modules and keyboards and with the Mac where we were robbing stuff. And it, was, it was crazy, but it was, we had so many options at that point where we'd go in the studio and, you know. Matter of fact, to be honest, we lay, we were laying the foundation for that album down while we were on the road, literally. We were in a place one time, can't remember, it was down South somewhere. it might have been in Florida, where we we were, we would carry our equipment out to be able to sequence, because we had tour buses at that time. So we would take the beds. Take the mattresses off, put them against the walls and stuff, so we soundproof it. And we would come up, get our mobile set up up, and we would just be programming. <laughs> so a lot of that that a lot of that album was done on the road. Don't take me for granted, you know. All that stuff was done while we were you know we, we were out on the road touring. We were programming that album. Wow. Yeah.
1: Did, did that uh, inspire some of the, you know, lyrical and thematic ideas too?
0: Yeah, I think at that time, the places that we were at, um, you know, in the environment, had played a lot of to do with, you know, the way, you know, programming and putting stuff together, yes, I believe so. Because I distinctly remember, um, don't take me for granted. David did that, and I remember we were in Palm Beach when he was working on that, because I think he used to call that Palm Beach, if I'm not mistaken. But I think that's where that song came about, you know. The music anyway, Wayne wrote the lyric. David wrote the music to that. With all, with all the, uh,
1: you know, classic romantic type tracks that Atlantic Star has done, who's the hopeless romantic of the group
0: <clears throat> i would have to say probably my brother wayne because he's the lyricist mm-hmm. so you know he, he he's the one that doesn't mind exposing his heart mm-hmm. see for me that's a hard thing to do <laughs> <laughs> but um he always had the free he was free he always had that freedom where he would you know he could open up and just do whatever He wrote from his heart. I think that's what made our music unique in and of itself, because a lot of the stuff that he wrote was was pure, honest stuff that he experienced or what was in his head or whatever. Because my brother Wayne was a, a fantasizer and a dreamer. You know, I mean, he always had this vivid imagination. So. Um, and, but he had the gift of being able to put that together. And not only that, how to produce a vocal, you know, and understand it, harmony and all that, him and David, that's what they're really, you know, really, really good at.
1: What's the uh, age differences with you guys?
0: Um, I'm four years older than Wayne and i um, five years older than David, I think, yeah.
1: So do you, you know, do you have that big brother dynamic or?
0: Yeah, I sort of did because, you know, my father, my father passed away when I was eight and a half. Mm-hmm. My mother had really basically raised eight kids by herself. So I had to take on that. I had to be the point man. So, yeah, I, you know, I was I was like a father to my younger brothers because I had had a lot of responsibility growing up. I had to, you know, I had to watch them. Sometimes I had to stay home from school to take care of them, cook, clean, shop, everything, you know? Yeah. When my grandmother came, then she helped out my mother a lot. But up to that point, I had to step it up, you know? I realized what time it was. You know, so you do what you got to do. Yeah. You know. So
1: so did that carry over at all to you know the business side of music? You know, did you kind of interface more with management or with you know those kinds of things?
0: Yes, I did. I was uh, in the early days. Again, like I said, my of beginnings was carrying the equipment, setting up, and then I evolved the sound. And then once I started playing trombone, um, I was doing that. But then I was also hanging out in the city and working with different agents that were booking shows, a booking gig for us when we were a new band. So I was basically dealing with a lot of the business stuff. But most of it, it was myself and Albert Jones. And then when we finally got our first decent band, you know, I went. We went to the bank and got a loan. And, you know, that's how we got, you know, our, our first good van. you know, because we had four other vehicles straight out after a while, you know, trying to be independent and, in you know. Um, and then In the early days, we used to rehearse at Porter's House a lot, because Porter's House was the place where we, we rehearsed. Yeah, but as we got older, we said, hey, we need to get more independent, you know, get out there, get the van rehearsal spot because my mother's car she had, had a malibu and that was the band that turned into the band car i wore that car out
1: what what year malibu uh
0: it was a malibu station wagon oh at least it
1: was a station wagon
0: and it must have been like uh 68 67 69 station wagon <laughs> used to pack all that equipment up and then prior to us not getting bands and stuff and, you know, and then, you know, when we, early days when we first started, uh, the bass player's father, Clifford Archer's father, Mr. Archer used to drive us around, you know. But like I said, as we evolved, we were trying to get more independent and more uh, self-sustaining. And so that's what we did.
1: And we ended up doing it big time. Um, You guys became superstars really Um,
0: Yeah